Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com if you're interested in any of Walter's music. And thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM Community Radio. If any of you out there would like to know more about Community Radio, WPVMFM.org is a great place to to look and if you would or to listen really and if you would like to reach out to me jamesnave.com that's my website my email is nave at jamesnave.com would love to hear from you where are you what are you doing in the world what's up in your life what's your story nave at jamesnave.com and if you would like to join me and my creative collaborator any Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, for our Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session, please feel free to join us. The door is always open. We gather with writers from all over the world and just generate some material. We read our work, too. We laugh a fair amount and would love to have you join us if you are so moved to do such a thing. ImaginativeStorm.com. That's imaginativestorm.com, and you can find the Zoom link there. Would love to have you. And if you've been listening to this show over the past uh, few months or a few years, perhaps, you know I interview people that I've never met before, and I also interview some people that I've known for a long time. And today I have a guest on. I've known her for many, many years. In fact, I knew her when she was very young, and, and she was the, or is the um, daughter of my college roommate, John Wyatt. Her name is Cassidy Wyatt. And Cassidy and I have known each other a long time, and the reason I have her on air today is because she does many things. She does social media. She's a photojournalist, a photographer, a writer, and she also has her captain's license. And she sails around on the sea. And what better combination? Photography, sailing? I'm visiting here with her and her father and mother, Patty Wyatt, at, in Boulder, Colorado. So I thought, what better thing to do on a Sunday afternoon than to interview Cassidy. So Cassidy Wyatt, welcome <laughs> to Twice Five Miles Radio. Hi. The other day, you were just talking about your life and your, your sailing adventures. I'm going to open this up for you and tell us what took you from being born in the High Rockies to the sea, and how did you get a captain's license, and why in the world would you do that? And man, I know I've seen plenty of your emails and and posts on Instagram and Facebook taking photos of the sea. So, what got you started, and how did it all go? I've just always been drawn to the ocean. I've always wanted to be near the ocean. I went to school in North Carolina. Um, I was in art school there. I was living in Greensboro, nowhere near the ocean really. If I graduated college and was like, I don't know what I'm doing and I don't want to live here anymore. And so I went to Hawaii and then I lived in Hawaii for eight years and I kept thinking, maybe I'll get into boating. Eventually I did. I started working on circle tours, swimming with dolphins and going out on sunset sails and doing manta ray dives and all that kind of stuff. I uh, learned how to sail 
doing that with my old boat, Captain Elaine, on a 40-foot Catalina. My ex and I bought a boat together at Cape Dory 27. It was in Oahu. We were on the Big Island, so we flew to Oahu. And that was my very first ocean crossing was from Oahu to Big Island, to Kona. One of the things that I thought was interesting when we were having supper the other night, you talked at length about the different kinds of boats and what they would do and why one would work better than another. So what's a Cape Dory 27? <laughs> I would assume it's 27 feet long. Is that yep, what that we... Yeah, that is correct. But what else makes it a Cape Dory and why is it a boat you would start working with in the beginning? or Well, it was what we could afford. It was very inexpensive. I think it cost $7,200. 27 feet is very small. So typically a 27 foot boat is going to be something that you're only just cruising coastal or whatnot. But this one was in particular, the Cape Dory in general are really great boats. They're very sturdy, hardy blue water boats. That's what they're made for. This one was a full keel. So you could actually stand up and underneath like my ex is six feet. He even had headroom. So it was like a very spacious cabin. There was a very small galley, so very small kitchen. And there was even a head, so a bathroom. We picked it because we could afford it, but it was also, I was so green. I had absolutely no clue what I was really doing. Well, what were stakes that you made when you first started to try to do this? When you say you were green, I mean, a lot of people listening to this, you know, they're dry land people. I'm on the dry land. I have no idea how to sail. I've paddled a canoe. That's about as far as it goes. What kind of mistakes would I make or did you make when you first started to do this? I mean, there's so many, but sailing is is forgiving in some ways. I mean, don't be an idiot. Don't go out in weather that you know you can't be out in. Like, take it slow. And we did in the beginning, especially in Hawaii. I was so new that I didn't know what I was doing, but I was relying on my ex who did. And so he would tell me to pull that line or <laughs> we're going to put up the mast or we're going to do these these things. And like for the most part, sailing is actually very simple. So people say it to me all the time. I don't have any experience. If I come crew on your boat, I won't know what I'm doing. And like that doesn't really matter. It's more that you can stomach it, that you're not going to get seasick. And that you're with people that do know what they're doing, because as long as you have somebody there that can grab the helm when they need to, you're, you're going to be just fine. <laughs> so what are some of the things that you do when you go on a boat before you sail? What do you check out? What is your checklist? It depends on what you're doing. Are you just going out for a quick day trip? Then, yeah, you're you're not going to be super concerned with, like, the engine or what's making sure you have done an oil change and whatnot. You're not going to be as concerned with things going wrong if you're only going out for like a few hours because you'll make it back. If you're crossing an ocean, it's a whole different story. You want to just to make sure your sails are going to go up correctly, that your rolling furler is working correctly, that your engine is right, that you're putting everything down. Like you want to make sure that you're strapping everything down in case anything goes flying, you would do that. No matter where you're going, you're going to want to make sure that you've gone down below and strapped everything down. And so when you started doing this, you ended up with a fair number of what I can tell adventures on the high seas. 
after you got started. You did do some long sales. So tell us about some of those longer sales you did once you got more advanced and you did get your captain's license, which... My captain's license was actually after I did all of my sailing. You actually have to have, I think I had done 720 days at sea to actually get my captain's license. You do need the experience before you can just go. You can go and take, anyone can go and take a captain's course and pass the test and everything. But um, if you don't have that sea time, then you're not going to be able to get it. How... I came about all of it is that my ex and I had plans of sailing to South Pacific and we broke up. Uh, We were not meant to be, which is great. Actually, it was fine. (laughs) Um, It was a good decision on both our parts. He actually does still have the Cape Jory. She claims that he is going to sail to South Pacific. So let's hope that happens. I, on the other hand, when we... uh, broke up, decided that I needed to know whether or not I actually wanted to be on the ocean. And if that really was something that was my dream or if it was something I was just following because my ex wanted to do it. And I took a position on a tall ship in Panama. Still living on the big island at the time, I had, it was quite the transition of moving myself, my dog, and all my things. Moving off an island is not easy. I moved it all back to Colorado. I happened to meet two sisters that were from Colorado, had a boat in Panama, and were like, yeah, we have this boat, come on down, come be a crew. And I thought, oh, this is meant to be. More Colorado natives, just like me. Young, we're all the same age, like it's gonna be great. I met the one sister here in Denver and we traveled to Panama together and stayed actually at her dad's house the first few weeks that I was in Panama. I had another friend, Christine, who took a job with them as the chef. She went ahead and went to the boat. So I'm in Coldera, Panama. And their father, the very first night, came up to me. It was a very random moment, but he looked at me and he said, you know, you have a very good energy about you. And so I just want to like, give you a warning about my daughter. Every time she points a finger at you, just remember that there's three fingers pointed back at her. And so like that was kind of the unfolding of how that entire event was really going to happen. So eventually we did take a bus to Bocas del Toro and met the boat there. And sure enough, it turned out that it was not a situation that I actually wanted to be in. They were very much drunks. They were very much running illegal charters, a lot of which I did not know. So <laughs> Christine and I, luckily I had a friend. So we, we tried our hardest. We tried to make the best out of it. And about a, a little over a month into it, we jumped ship, literally. Started bouncing around Bocas. And eventually she did go back to South Dakota and I was just not ready yet because I had not done my ocean crossing. So I ended up getting on some other boats and like looking at some other positions, all of which were very inexperienced. And at the time, I didn't really feel like I was that experienced, but I was like the most experienced person on the boat. So one thing led to another. And somehow I happened to meet a couple, Alan and Corinne, who ended up kind of saving me in focus. (laughs) They uh, let me stay on their boat for a night or so I thought was going to be a night. Uh, While I was like trying to figure out this transition period I was in, I had jumped ship off a different boat because 
that just sounded sketchy what was happening there as well and then kind of just was with these people and the next thing I know Corinne and I actually went to the grocery store and she's we were in the dinghy coming back and she looked at me and was like if you want we're going to Cayman Islands and you're welcome to come with us and I was like I don't know where that is, but yeah, let's do it. The boat was not actually in the best shape to go to Cayman Islands. It had a leaking shaft seal. And the guy who had used the boat before Alan had run it aground, but had not told Alan that he had run it aground and destroyed the steering. So Alan's like trying to fix the steering. And we all kind of came together. We like fixed Gertie up. We still had the leaking shaft seal. We took multiple opinions of this leaking shaft seal as to whether or not we could go or not. We thought about pulling it out. We, we went back and forth. And then um, actually our friend Jeff, who is a diesel mechanics, marine diesel mechanic, sat us down. People ride around with a leaking shaft seal for years. You're probably going to be fine. And so that was the advice we decided to go with. So it took us nine days to get to Cayman Islands. So we also left earlier than we should have because normally if you wait correctly, it's only going to take you five days to get from Panama to Cayman Islands. And there's always a season in the Caribbean. Every every sailing trip has a season. You know, you're not going to sail around the Caribbean during hurricane season. That's just stupid. We were waiting for a wind shift and we would have had to wait for like another month before we would have been in the correct time to go. And all of us were really done with Panama. And so we just went. And knowing that we would be beating into the wind the entire time, which is what we did. Beating into the wind, you're just riding really close to the wind, which means that you're on a heel. So you are at a 45 degree angle for nine days which is okay, you know, it does, you have your moments. The worst was really just as a woman going to the bathroom because it was like trying to like balance yourself when you're on a tilt. Um, But other than that, we had really great weather. We had no rain whatsoever. However, because of the way that the winds were moving, it was just pushing us further towards Panama slash Colombia. We were pretty much going to Colombia the first like three days that we were sailing. And then once we hit a certain point, we were able to point correctly. And then we kind of finally like shot back up to Cayman. It it all blends together. It's really all feels like one big long day. We did have some very rolling waves. You know, I learned to really love the waves during that whole time. I learned to ride them really well and... Now I love it. Now when we have three foot swells, I'm like, <laughs> great, this is going to be fun. When did you know you had fallen in love with the sea? I fell in love with the sea as a child. It just always, always had some sort of draw to it. My grandparents lived in Moorhead City. They retired there, so I spent a lot of my childhood in the Outer Banks. And I always just wanted to be near the ocean. And it was when I moved to Hawaii that I started looking at it and seeing it and being like, I want to be out there. I don't even want to be on it. Sure, I want to be in it. And I started to realize that actually bartending at a resort in Kona and was just looking at the ocean every day. And I just kept thinking to myself, like, I want to be out there. I don't want to be here. When you're out there sailing on the sea, what kind of communication do you have with the sea? Do you feel yourself able to speak to it, communicate with it? Does it message you anything? I respect the sea. I'm scared of the sea. 
if you're not scared of the sea, then you shouldn't be on it. It's a very powerful thing. As a joke, I always give Neptune a cookie when we leave. So it started actually with my sailing trip from Big Island to to Kona. We were going across the Alaniwihaha Channel, which is one of the most dangerous channels in the world. And it can, you know, it was like this hit or miss. We were hitting a little bit of wind. Like we were in Maui. We'd been motoring because there was no wind. All of a sudden we started getting wind. We're like right on the channel. And I flipped on the weather and we're listening to the weather, storms building right where we are. And then at one point I grabbed a cookie and I was like, let's just give Neptune a cookie. And La Mau Mau, who is the wind god, the Hawaiian wind god. And so I threw a cookie out and was like, here you go, fair winds and following seas to Neptune. And then it was on the radio, they came on and were like, you're better, basically better off in the channel than you are on the outskirts of it right now. And so we originally tried to go to La Perouse, which is an anchorage in Maui, and went to go there and the waves were just breaking out in the entrance everything just kind of came to this point where Justin and I looked at each other well let's just go let's just do it and so we did and then as soon as we started it like completely calmed out and we had nothing it was like a lake it was like sailing across a lake there was nothing and then we saw whales first whales of the season because it was in September early on humpbacks but I don't know is that speaking to the ocean I don't know it could be. Many would say that it is. <laughs> Certainly offering Neptune a cookie may sound simple, but obviously the waves calmed. Yeah. And you saw whales. You said it was a dangerous passage, and you've been doing this a fair amount. What are some accidents that you've seen? What are some of the dangerous things that have happened on the sea for you that worked out or didn't work out for somebody? I think the most, like... The most dangerous times you really see it is actually just coastal cruising people at shore. Lots of times you have just idiots trying to get into like the marina or whatever that aren't doing it right and they run themselves aground. And in Hawaii was always really bad because it's lava rock and it's very, very unforgiving. People always ask that. They're always like, so when is it most scary? And I've definitely had some hairy points. We ran aground in Cuba. Cuba's very poorly marked. There wasn't a mark for the channel we were coming out of. So we were able to get out of it fine. The boat was fine. The problem is that in the process of getting ourselves unstuck, we busted the shaft seal. So this already leaking shaft seal now completely gone. If, if you turn on the engine and try and go forward, it's like a hose coming into the boat. At that point, Alan, especially since it was his boat, was like, we're not running this engine. You know, we're just going to have to sail. And the one thing I learned from that entire trip, if you're going sailing or you are going to make a passage and the person you're going with is very antsy and they really want to get to where they're going right away, don't go. <laughs> like... Sailing is not a rushed scenario. If you don't have a few days to sit and chill and wait out whatever storms or whatever wind or whatever it is that's happening, then don't do it. It's not something that you should rush. Um, and that's when I feel like most sailors get themselves in trouble is because they want to be in a certain place at a certain time. And when we were in Cayman Islands, we'd gotten our jobs 
can't be on island while your permits are going through. And so you have to leave. You have to leave for like three weeks or so while your permit goes through to work and then you come back. I actually did not have a job, so I didn't care. I was the only one <laughs> out of the four of us um, because we had also brought Juan, who's a Colombian that we had met in Panama. We were a Kiwi, a Canadian, a Colombian, and an American sailing together. Everybody else had managed to get jobs right off the boat. And I wasn't as worried about it because I was kind of just doing this cruise. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know where I was going. I had money saved. I had, like, sold my Jeep in Hawaii. So I wasn't super worried about it. I figured if I didn't get a job when we came back, no big deal. When we got the word, your permits have gone through, we need to go. And then suddenly, oh, we have to go right away. That was really where we hit a more difficult point. Because we were in Trinidad, Cuba, we had to sail... Um, to San Fuego, Cuba, and San Fuego, once you get through the canal and the entrance into San Fuego is like a big L shape. Even though we had great wind while we were sailing to San Fuego, as soon as we entered into that channel, we lost all of our wind. So we were tacking back and forth. You can look at our track and it's the line going back and forth. And we were there for a couple hours. We like, even the authorities were calling, boat in the channel, what are you doing? As soon as we get to the elbow of this like L-shaped channel, we lost total wind. So then we had no wind. So then we're just like sitting ducks. We're just kind of sitting there waiting. And a catamaran came around the corner and ended up towing us to the anchorage we spent the next couple of days in uh, San Fuego provisioning for the couple of days that we it would take us to get back to Cayman. Then we had to get ourselves out of the, the scenario. So we were leaving at night. We were trying to time it to that. We weren't picking the best weather window by any means because everybody was so ready to like get back, which was also making me nervous. But Sometimes, you know, you just follow your gut when it all comes down to it. And I felt like we were going to still be fine, but it was nerve wracking. So we had no wind and while we were in this anchorage. So we dropped the dinghy in and we side tied the dinghy to the boat. Juan drove the dinghy and we got ourselves out just by towing us down this channel. At the time, Cuba is like littered with all these night fishermen. So we're just dodging crab pots and fishermen left and right. And we get closer and closer to the entrance. I was at the helm, so I'm steering us while Alan's trying to get Juan back and the dinghy back. And suddenly, as we get close to the entrance, it's breaking waves. We're suddenly going to enter into the ocean, which has, like, a lot of wind. We don't have any wind because we're blocked, but now we're suddenly coming into this. So it's kind of this little washing machine effect that's happening. And it was pretty sketchy. There were definitely some moments trying to get Juan back into the boat from the dinghy. I thought he was going to slip between the boat. We were relatively blasé in the beginning of our sailing, which has very much changed. You see a lot of people that have that same mindset. You really should make sure that you have all your life jackets, all of these things that can happen because things can happen. Like you can run into a container floating in the ocean only 20% of that container is going to be in the water and the rest of it is underneath. So it's like, that's what you're running into. And for people who wouldn't know what you mean by container, you were talking about these tractor trailer size boxes that sit on freighters 
yeah, and they, weigh they tons. Fall. And when they fall in the sea, you <laughs> yeah. don't see much of them except yeah. a little bit sticking up. But yeah. there's a lot underneath. Is yeah. that what you're talking about? Yes. Until they eventually sink themselves. But people don't realize how that's actually somewhat of a common occurrence in that it's one of the things that you're looking out for. That's why you always have someone on watch. There's always somebody awake. There's always somebody looking at the ocean and aware of what's going on. You're always dodging container ships or other boats. And when we were talking the other night, you were describing the people who sail, like you and your friends on these boats, adventuring around, hoping to get out from Cuba or wherever you go. And then we also talked about the bigger boats. And you told me that you had crewed on a billionaire's boat once. So contrast that experience. <laughs> Give us a little taste of what, what that would be like. And what I gleaned from your comments, it's not that romantic it's not such a dazzling lifestyle at least for the crew who knows about the people who own the boat all boating scenarios are very different the sailing that i've done that i enjoy is on a private boat when i've gone to these more luxury situations you're catering to what other people want um, and sometimes these people don't care they don't care if you have more than the capacity of your boat. So it depends on the size of the boat that you're on. You have a capacity of how many people you're allowed to have, especially as a commercial license. In the case of the billionaires, they didn't care. They wanted to throw 40 people on that boat, even though they could only have 25. And they were mad when they get said no to. You know, it's like, no, that's it's our boat. We're going to do it. These people would not be sailors. These no. people wouldn't be seafarer people. These people who are people who own boats more like they own a hotel that's floating and they come yes. and go on the hotel. And then the crew takes care of all the sailing Yeah. around this well, large they don't, yacht. Most of the time they aren't even, I worked on a 103 foot boat. It was a private yacht and it didn't really go that many places because the owners were very old. They were well into their 70s. In this case, we're also not in the best of health. They would send us wherever they wanted to go. So I originally started in Cape Canaveral, which is actually what made me leave Cayman Islands, was these people had offered me this position and flew me from Cayman to Cape Canaveral, Florida. And then eventually after I had been there, just hanging out on the boat for a few months, not going anywhere, just sitting in dock, they decided they wanted to go to the Bahamas. So they sent us to the Bahamas. So we went to Albany in Bahamas and Nassau, which is like a very, very ritzy, very fancy marina with like just some of the fanciest crazy yachts that you would ever see I mean, these things were huge like 200 250 foot yachts and like just pristine and beautiful and then you have all these people that work on them because they have to have big crews because you there's just so much going on on them that you need to have a larger amount of people on them um, which is its own melting pot of personalities and ours was very inexpensive yacht. They didn't want to spend that much money on it. It was kind of starting to dilapidate. It was supposed to be a crew of six, but we were a crew of three. So we were a skeleton crew. In some ways it was great because we didn't have that pristine, perfectly tailored 
outfits, wanting to go and polish everything. We tried, but <laughs> it wasn't. We were not the same. I used to joke a lot that I should make a YouTube video or a YouTube because everybody asks me, so is your life below that? When you're on the water because you want to make money off of being on the water, it's a very different scenario than if you're a sailor that just wants to be on it because they love it. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned from the very beginning of sailing to even now, there is a heavy difference between a fisherman and a sailor. Um, as my grandmother would say it, she would call them stink pots or sailboats are bags of rags or diaper hangers. In Hawaii, I also volunteered at the kids sailing camps and it was actually somewhat disturbing because the fishermen would always try to knock the kids down. We would be sending them out on little dinghies coming out of the marina to like go do little what you'd call beer can races, which is just putting like a can in the water and you have to get to it and roll around it. So we're doing that and the fishermen coming in after going out fishing all day would purposely come up really close to the boats and go as fast as they can and create giant wakes to try and throw the kids off. And it's like, these are children that you're doing this to. But they, it wasn't just kids that they did it to, it was just that was the most disturbing thing that they would do for me to witness. They would do it to us too. I mean, if my um, tour boat, which was 40 feet Catalina, was coming in, they would do the same thing. They would zip past us and come really close to us and try and wake us and try and like, I mean, really it's dangerous. So going back for a moment to these large yachts, how many people are required to crew one of those big yachts? And I'm asking this now because yachts are in the news because we're confiscating many of the Russian oligarchs yachts. So we are all seeing pictures, or at least I am, of these photographs of these huge yachts, impossible to imagine really. What is required to maintain and run one of those things? How many people? Uh, it depends on the boat. It depends on the size of the boat. It depends on, like I said, I mean, we technically were supposed to be a crew of six, but we were a crew of three. But there's so many different positions as well because we're a crew of three, yes, because we needed three to be able to dock the boat, basically. You needed at least three people. When it comes to the yachts, the big yachts, or you probably have multiple stews depending on how big your yacht is, how many people you are. If you're a tour company, that's going to make it a total different thing too. A lot of yachts will rent their boats out and they will run charters and they'll make money off of them. That is more below deck. That's not what I was doing because we were just always working with the private owners and their friends and their guests. But when you start doing it on that more commercial level, then it's a requirement. Then the Coast Guard's going to step in and be like, you have to have this many people for this many feet of boat. For those big boats, I would imagine you would have 20 or 30 people. Completely depends on the boat. In Hawaii, just taking out people on snorkel tours and stuff, you have what you'd call like a six pack or you have like a cattle boat. If you have a six pack boat, then you that's exactly how many people you can take out, six people. You can't take any more out. That's actually determined by your license. The Catalina I worked on was a six pack. That was a private thing as well. People had to rent out the entire boat and then it was like they could only bring their six guests. So if we had more than six people, then we're gonna have to have another crew. So at six people, you can just run with one crew and one captain.
I could be getting all of this wrong because it's I have not worked in the commercial yachting world in many years now. Well, it's so. a guess. It's really just a, just a guess. <laughs> and I'm just curious about it because I get seasick. I don't think I'll ever be on a yacht or sailing. Seasick like, is just like all you in your do. head, though. It may be. I'm not. You willing can train to. yourself to not. Ah, I will take a lesson <laughs> in in. In training myself. Not or so to be I hear, because I've never actually been seasick. That's, but that's interesting. I know people that have that kind of like train themselves to like tell their, their brain, no, this is correct. This is correct. It's okay. We're moving. Because that's like the whole point, right? Is your brain still just thinks that you're standing on solid ground and it doesn't understand why you're moving the way you're moving. And that's why you get seasick. So have you had to deal with people who've had seasickness? Oh, yeah. What is that like? Juan had seasickness the whole nine days that we were going from Panama to Cayman Islands. Although we're a little like, we're not sure if he was sick because he was sick or if he was sick because he didn't want to do dishes. But <laughs> just kidding. He really was sick, I think. We were wrapped around a rock. We were trying to dive anchor to try and get us off or whatever and he didn't clear he dove down because we were like pulling it up the chain and when he dove down he didn't clear himself and so when he came back up I think he damaged his ears and he didn't tell any of us and so after we got out and he just kept complaining about being seasick it wasn't until we got into Cayman Islands that any of us really even found out that he that had happened to him and that like that was what was going on. So we joke that it's because he didn't want to do dishes because he did get out of dishes the entire time. <laughs> but he probably really was sick and it was like an inner ear damage. And apparently that is something that can happen. If you damage your inner ear, you're going to get seasick. Last night at dinner, you were talking about your friend Alan and how something had happened to him on a boat. I don't think you yeah, were that there. Was, it was Gertie. Gertie is the boat that I sail on, or SV. SV Gertrude. We shorten it to Gertie. It's fitting. She's a big, fat Morgan 41 classic. It was a hurricane that was coming through. I had already left the boat at that point. I had already, I was on my yachting adventures and they normally would take the boat to Guatemala for hurricane season. But at this point they had missed that window and they weren't taking it. So they weren't taking their chances. And it wasn't actually a hurricane that was coming through. It was tropical depression, but it might as well from the stories I'm hearing could, should have been a hurricane, but he had strapped off as best he could. The boat like to the dock some people were on their boats some weren't he was running around saving other people's boats retying things off at some point he went to get off of Gertie and he slipped between Gertie and the dock and he hit his head on the boat or the dock who knows what he hit his head on but it knocked him out cold and he went straight down to the seafloor and is actually very lucky that he survived just a little background but Alan is Mallory so he's this big kiwi dude six three his girlfriend is this adorable little tiny petite woman maybe five two so she's trying to dive in to find him can't find him kind of chaotic what's happening and then there was actually two south africans that were on boats at the time nearby i don't know if they witnessed it or if they cringe just yelled at him or what but it ended up being one of them that dove down and saved him and so that's a good example 
of how something can happen really fast. On well, and that, but that's something that happened while it was docked. Like, that's also, again, another scenario. If you're, as a boat owner, what are you going to do during hurricane season? If you're in the path of it, what are you going to do? Are you going to go find a hurricane hole and some mangroves? Are you going to sail somewhere that is a hurricane hole? The decisions you have to make, and that was the decision that they made that year, and that's how it happened. What's a hurricane hole? Rio Dulce, Guatemala is a hurricane hole. That's what people would call it as a hurricane hole. When you get there, it's the sweet river. You sail in from sea and then you you transfer into the fresh water of this ginormous river and then you go up into a big lake. So it's a whole freshwater scenario and that's what makes it a hurricane hole. You can shelter yourself in this area because there's land surrounding you. So if a hurricane does go through, it's not really gonna trash anything in that area. Um, in Cayman Islands, if you want to find a hurricane hole, you're going to probably find some sort of area in the mangroves and, and hope nobody else knows. We definitely heard like lots of stories of Alan and I used to dinghy around trying to find our little hurricane holes of like where we would go if anything happened. And you know somebody else is going to show up or already have that hole, though. Um, but we did hear lots of stories of when hurricanes would come through and came out and people going into like one particular area and then dragging and all of the boats just ending up on top of each other. So, so if you have more than one boat in a hurricane hole, it bangs, to, they bangs are, against the other like boats. So you have to put the boat in the hole, which would be a lagoon or an, an area with water. It's really just kind of, yeah, it's still, you're, you still need it to be deep enough that you're not dragging your keel on the ground. And like you still want it, but you also want it to be small and tight enough that like it's blocking all the wind or as much wind as you can. And if it does suck out the water or present more water that you have room to go up and down with it, sometimes people pick the wrong area and they end up aground because the water surges and their boats just falls onto the ground. It's sketchy. And no matter what you pick, it's going to be sketchy if you are going to try and ride out a hurricane. And you haven't done that yet? Um, I have not in a boat, no. I mean, I've been in many hurricanes, like just on the coast of North. I mean, I remember being a kid in North Carolina and going, there was a hurricane and my grandparents were funny. I mean, they're very typical North Carolinians. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> they're evacuating, but we're still here. And I remember calling my grandma and talking to her on the phone during a hurricane and her being like, oh yeah, it's fine. There's some trees flying by, but it's all good. I have pictures of me on a beach in, the, in a hurricane with my grandmother, like sopping wet. But I've never been on a boat and tried to do it. And personally, I don't really want to. It's definitely I, not a goal. I don't blame you. <laughs> what are you planning to do in your sailing future as we close out our time together? I honestly have no idea. I think that's just the... Um, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Uh, I'm still very, very drawn to the ocean. And I do have lots of stories. I most currently, I still sail with Gertie and my friends, Alan and Corinne. We just did Cayman Islands to Guatemala. So the boat is back in Guatemala. It had been run into in Cayman Islands. So a very drunk man ran and his friends ran right smack into the middle of Gertie and put a giant hole in the side of her. So this last trip that I did with Alan, we were doing it kind of to get the boat to Guatemala so that she could get fixed. So it was all very much a patch job. So another story of sketchy moments that I've had on sea, because we did have a lot of wind that passage and stuff. And um, But anyway, so the boat is in Guatemala and his plan 
his original goal has always been to get the boat back to New Zealand. And he wants to, hopefully this winter, probably in December, we'll take the boat down to the canal and go through the canal, which I've also is a goal of my own, a little like sailing goal of being able to go through the canal. And then we would sail to Hawaii and then down to the French Polynesia. And then who knows? Um, And then that's, if that happens, I don't know. That's a plan. I think more than anything, I just... I'm trying to figure out how I can fit myself and my life in the ocean together, how how those puzzle pieces come together, and I'm not really sure yet how they do. And as far as the other puzzle pieces go, I know you do photography, you do wedding photography, you you do photography for food. In fact, you're going to Asheville, North Carolina to do a story on a pizza restaurant there. <laughs> yeah. And you also do social media work for people like me and Allegra. And so how would people get in touch with you? And oh, what's the pizza place in Asheville you're going to go Galactic shoot? Galactic Pizza. Galactic Pizza. Yes. People Galactic listening pizza. in Asheville, will maybe some of them will know Galactic yes, Pizza. Yes, it's very delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so how do people get in touch with you and find out more about the work you do? I know you've got great websites. You've got terrific photos, all kinds of archives of, of weddings, people in love, people traveling. You can go to my website at CassidyWyant.com. Wyant, W-A-Y-A-N-T. I also have my Instagram, which is Wyant underscore photography. And yeah. I always like the way your last name was spelled. W-A-Y-A-N-T. <laughs> W-A-Y-A-N-T. CassidyWyatt.com. Well, Cassidy, thank you for spending this time with me in Boulder, Colorado, talking about the high seas. There's no no sea nearby, but the sea's in our imagination today. Yeah. And hopefully in our future at some point. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. I appreciate you thinking of me. <laughs> more than welcome, more than welcome. My first interview. <laughs> well, maybe it will be the beginning of... <laughs> A new part of your media career. Anyway, thanks again. Yes, of course. Thank you. And there you go, my friends. Thus ends our conversation with Cassidy Wyatt. As you know, she has her captain's license and loves to sail. I didn't know it took so much time on the sea in order to qualify for the captain's license. Cassidy also is a terrific photographer She does a fair amount of social media work and an excellent writer. I've read some of her articles, and she does a great job of capturing the essence of a moment. So maybe we'll see more travel writing from Cassidy's imagination, her experiences, and her seafaring journeys. A day after she and I finished this interview, Cassidy got an email inviting her to join Paul Wasson's Seafaring Project, the Sea Shepherd, I believe it's called. That was Paul Wasson's first boat. And what Paul Wasson's group does, the Sea Shepherd group, they go on the sea and monitor environmental situations. So Cassidy is invited to join one of the sailing expeditions and be one of the members of the media crew. So I'm looking forward to seeing what Cassidy reports. It's a very, very good offer, something very few people get. 
So when I heard the news, Cassidy told me she was very excited. So we await Cassidy's adventures on the high sea. I am now thinking of a poem written by John Macefield, one you may know. It's titled Sea Fever, and I just have to offer it up to you right now because, well, hey, we've been talking about the sea, and even though I get seasick, and I am not a sailor like Cassidy, often my thinking, my work, my inspiration comes from the experiences I've had around the sea. My first trip to the ocean was Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I lived on the coast in Wilmington, North Carolina for a while. I've traveled up and down the coast of California, also been along the coast all the way up through Maine. So I've had a fair amount of experience with the sea from the point of view of standing on the shore. I remember when I was a boy and first went to the beach, Myrtle Beach, as I said, I don't know if this memory is right or not, but I do believe I stood there on the, the shore looking out across the great Atlantic, wondering where Europe was. Little did I know that in Myrtle Beach, when you stand on the shore and you look out across the great Atlantic, if you could see the landmass that's way east of you, you would see Morocco. You wouldn't see Europe. I didn't know that when I was a boy looking out on the sea. All I knew was I couldn't see land and all I could see was a lot of water. Unlike Cassidy, who spent some of her time along coastal Carolina when she was a child, I didn't look out on the sea and think, I want to go there. I looked out on the sea and thought, whoa, look how big it is. I can't say I was threatened, but I can tell you I was awe-inspired and never had the desire to get into all of those big rolling waves. And yet so many people have. So that's why I would like to offer you John Macefield's Sea Fever. So, so here it is. I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and the sky. And all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. And the wheels kick and the wind song and the white sails shaking and a gray mist on the sea's face and a gray dawn breaking. I must go down to the seas again, for the call of the running tide is a wild call, and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day, and the white clouds flying, and the flung spray and the blown spume and the seagulls crying. I must go down to the seas again, to the vagrant gypsy life, to the gull's way and the whale's way, where the wind's like a whetted knife. And all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover and a quiet sleep in a sweet dream when the long trick's over. Sea Fever by John Macefield. I've always loved that poem. I used to perform it a lot for school students when I was traveling around doing the theater work I did with a company called Poetry Alive. And because I travel so much on the land, I understand what Cassidy means when she talks about being called to the sea. Now, when you think about it, the sea, of course, has a floor, and that floor is the land. Somewhere way, way down below the water 
If you could get down there and stay down there, you would walk on solid ground. No different than above the water where you are now on solid ground, which we call earth. So the ground part of earth covers the entire globe, including what's under the water. So in some ways, the seafarers, the people on the sea, and the landfarers, we don't talk about them as landfarers, but the people who travel the earth, the, the roamers, the journey people, the, the road people, it's got to be somewhat the same psychology, really, I think. Because there's a, there's a call, there's something out there you want to go see, you want to experience. And it has little to do, at least for me, with the grand things one might see along the way, like the Grand Canyon or the Empire State Building or the Golden Gate Bridge. It has so much more to do with the small, simple things. So when I travel, unlike Cassidy, who ties off at a dock somewhere in a little harbor near an island or on an island, I often, when I travel, I'll sleep overnight in Walmart parking lots. A lot of people ask me when I tell them I sleep in Walmart parking lots, they say, aren't you afraid? And I say, well, no, I'm actually not. And I think it's a bit like what Cassidy would do when she would tie her boat off somewhere in a small harbor. Sure, there are things going around, on around you, but probably it's going to be fine. So I've always liked Walmart parking lots, and the reason I bring that up is because I would just like to take you up to the top of the hour with a little short story. I took a road trip, a, a landfarer trip, to North Carolina recently, and I went to be part of the Leaf Global Arts Retreat at Camp Rockmont near Black Mountain, North Carolina. And on the way, I drove the first leg of the trip through Colorado and Kansas. I came up from the two lanes and hit I-70 East somewhere in Kansas, maybe 150 miles west of Salina, Kansas. That day I'd left Taos at 1 p.m. in the afternoon and my goal was to drive as hard and as fast as I could until I achieved 600 miles because I was headed to St. Louis to visit Walter Parks who provides our theme song here. So that night, I pulled over in one of the Walmart parking lots, asked Siri to lead me to the parking lot, and when I pulled into the Walmart parking lot, I discovered a tree on the far end of the parking lot near the fence, and the tree blocked the lights in the parking lot. One of the reasons it's safe to stay in a Walmart parking lot because the, the, the lights keep the place well lit, and the place is actually guarded by security cars that go around during the night. So I pulled into the into the parking lot under the tree and spent the night, got up the next day and drove on to St. Louis. Then I went on down to Asheville and had the Gleef Global Arts Retreat, which was a wonderful time, and visited a bunch of friends and stayed in Asheville for a couple of weeks. And after a good solid visit, I pulled out, headed to Boulder, Colorado. And I do like to drive long distances and because I ride by myself and don't have to worry so much about stopping I can cover a lot of miles in one day 
So this was just last week I pulled out of Asheville and aimed for a thousand miles in a day. You can do that if you leave at 4 a.m. in the morning and it's Eastern time and you're headed west, so you're going to gain two hours. So it's a bit like leaving at 2 a.m. in the morning. So you can cover a lot of miles on the interstates. And that's exactly what I did that day. I covered a thousand miles. So when I reached a thousand miles, it was dark. I was tired. I wasn't exactly sure where I was. So I asked Siri if I could have directions to a Walmart parking lot. And when I was asking Siri about those directions, I was thinking about how much I would like to find another Walmart parking lot with a tree in it, like the one I'd found on my way east a few weeks earlier. So I said, Siri, show me the way to the Walmart parking lot. And Siri gave me directions down I-135. I had to travel six miles south to get to the Walmart parking lot. So I turned south down I-135, passed some gas stations, prices for gas going up. And when I pulled into the exit for the Walmart parking lot, I had a twilight moment. I thought I had been transported to another dimension. I recognized the exit. And as far as I was concerned, I'd never been there before. And I looked to the right and looked to the left and saw the bridge and I thought, gosh, this looks familiar. How in the world could I possibly know that? So I turned left and then I saw the Fairfield Inn to my right and I thought, whoa. And then I looked to my left and you've guessed it, there was the Walmart parking lot the very same parking lot I'd stayed in on my way east. I turned in, I found the tree, which was of course still there, pulled in, pushed my seat back, pulled out my pillow, covered myself with a little down blanket, and fell asleep. And the next day I woke, it was about 5 a.m., a little cool. I put my gear in the back, turned the car on, turned to the right, then made another right back on I-135, six miles up to I-70, took a left west, and headed to Boulder, which was around 300-plus miles away. I landed in Boulder around 1 p.m. and had lunch. And still, I was thinking about that tree and what a small little miracle it was to find exactly the same place, and I had no idea I was going to do it. Synchronicity, maybe? Luck, maybe? happenstance, a miracle, I don't know. Anyway, it was a good, good land-faring story like so many of Cassidy's seafaring stories. And of course, Cassidy and I could have talked for a long time more, and I could continue on, but we have arrived at the top of the hour. So I would just like to say you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thanks, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you'd like to know more of Walter's music, once again, thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. If you would like to know more about community radio, WPVMFM.org is a great place to look. 
If you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. I would love to hear from you. jamesnave.com is my website. And if you'd like to join me any Saturday morning for the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session, I gather with a group of writers, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. And we, we write. We only write for 10 minutes, but we use a prompt and we then read our work and we then discuss writing and ideas that pop. We usually have 20 people, sometimes 25 people on the call. It's a Zoom call. The door's always open. We would love to have you. And you can find the link for the Zoom at imaginativestorm.com. That's imaginativestorm.com. So we now have come to the end of our time together. I really appreciate you tuning in. Maybe you're listening to this show and you are out on the sea in a sailing boat like Cassidy. Who knows? Wherever you are, I'm glad you've spent a little time with us today. And I do hope you're in the mood to try it again sometime soon. And until then, here's hoping you have great adventures on the high seas, whether you're on the land or on the water. Thank you ever so much. And hey, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.